0: I'm great.
1: Yay. You sound good.
0: Thanks. Can you hear me okay? There's no uh, background noise. Where are you? In our studio. Okay. Really the only place I can escape to.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hi, everyone. I'm Amy. And I'm Jamie. And this is Clever. Today on the show, we've got Seth Grizzle of the Design Studio Gray Pants. He's a young architect and product designer with a lot of success under his belt already, including co-founding an international lighting brand, working with clients like BMW and Airbnb, being featured in Dwell Magazine, and he and his team are they're basically setting the design world on fire.
2: Back in design school, Seth met his friend and future partner in Gray Pants, Jonathan Junker. Obviously, they couldn't name their studio Junker and Grizzle. <laughs> You'll hear why they named it Gray Pants when we talk to Seth. But before we talk to seth we want to take a few minutes to thank you guys this is our last episode of 2016 and while we can all agree that it's been a pretty gnarly year for a lot of people we are super thrilled to have launched this podcast in may and put out 20 episodes already we've had a lot of great moments in those 20 episodes so jamie Mm -hmm. let's take a few minutes to reminisce shall we
1: yes every time i listen back to the podcast as we're doing the editing process there are things that i miss during the actual interview And they're like these great inspirational nuggets. And I'm like, whoa, I don't remember them saying that. That's awesome. And I always feel inspired when I listen to them. And one of the things I really loved was when we talked to Brendan Ravenhill, which was, I think, episode four. He takes some time for him and his team every week for them to be creative. They do a lot of their making. And then I I believe it was on Fridays, they take a little bit of a a break to think and ideate and all that and be creative. So he said that there's this sense of accomplishment when you've done all your work and you can be creative. Like you ate all your vegetables and now you get to have dessert. And I love that analogy.
2: I love that analogy, too. And it's perfect because he talked so much in that episode about a sense of play being important to creativity. Mm -hmm. And that encapsulates it because it makes you feel like a kid again, right? If you have to eat your vegetables before you can have dessert, it's a very childlike thing, which mm-hmm. already gets you in the mindset of play. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of kids, remember when Robert Bruner of Ammunition, who's basically the creative genius behind Beats by Dre headphones, was talking about like whether his kids thought he was cool or not, and he and he said what sealed the deal was when he brought home an Instagram pic of him in a Dre and Diddy sandwich.
1: (laughs) I think he said something like either it made me super cool or it made Dre and Diddy kind of dorky. Right, (laughs) right. That was actually a really great episode. And in case you missed it, it was episode number eight. Yes. And that pick is on our show notes at cleverpodcast.com. Go check it out. One of my favorite moments, which was like a duh moment for I think me and you was when we were talking with david truebridge which was to start our most recent episode number 19 And he convinced us that he and his family had been eaten by a whale when they were at sea sailing around the world. And we were like, really? We want to know the story. And then we were obviously being so gullible. He was pulling a fast one on us.
2: No, he was throwing it out as a joke. And you and I didn't get it at all. We were like, holy shit. How'd you get out of the whale? Right, right. What did you do? What kind
1: of plan did you devise to escape?
2: Total like suburban white girls, right? Totally.
1: (laughs) That was hilarious.
2: Remember? remember R.I.P. Prince. He died this year in 2016. It broke my heart, mm-hmm. but it was actually really moving and meaningful to hear Genevieve Gorder retell her story when she was young. She worked at Glam Slam in uh, Minneapolis mm-hmm. for Prince.
1: Yeah, I know. And we were super jealous. <laughs> I know. I'm so jealous. But so many of our guests have such great histories, such great backstories. Yeah. No, I loved talking to her. That was like our, our second episode. Mm-hmm. Episode number two. Yeah, that was a good one. I also like that she talked about playlists and music being important in interior design.
2: I do too. I think it's so important to create a sense of atmosphere, a sense of place, and Mm -hmm. to think about space, texture, feel, all these intangible things not just style, color, palette, and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. You know, you really got to conceive of how somebody might feel in the place in order to create atmosphere.
1: Oh, speaking of feelings, I think that one of our most inspiring episodes was by far Terry Crews. And he said to us, which like blew our minds, that when you feel scared, you're not really scared. You're just excited because your body is reacting the same way that's it would react right. to being scared, but you're not scared. You're excited. And that like blew our mind.
2: The physiological response to fear and excitement are exactly the same. Like your heart races, your temperature. I don't know, even sweaty. remember all the symptoms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whenever you think you're afraid, just remind yourself you're actually excited. Yeah.
1: I, I actually do that now. Like I think, okay, am I really scared of this or am I just excited and anticipating it?
2: It totally changes how I proceed. Mm-hmm. I I
1: love Terry Crews. Thank you for that. It's totally helped me in my life. That episode (laughs) was great. Um, That was episode number seven.
2: You know, David Weeks, he had something to say about that quiet confidence you you have when you're sort of venturing forth into uncharted territory. You know, you're charting a new path for yourself and there's not really any frame of reference or recipe to follow. Mm -hmm. And he just said, I don't know. I just always had the confidence that it would either work or I'd figure out how to make it work.
1: Yeah. He said, I never once thought it wasn't going to work out. I was always like, I'll figure it out. And if it doesn't work, I'll modify it. And that's such a great go with the flow attitude. And I am not like that at all. I'm like a control freak. So when I heard him say that, and we've actually had a couple of guests say that they kind of just go with the flow. That gave me a little bit more confidence to to know that like I can figure it out. Nothing terrible is going to happen that I can't manage.
2: Yeah, I tend to bring up David Weeks whenever I get in that sort of pre-planning, belaboring I have a tendency to sort of over plan things and get too meticulous because I'm hesitating to start because I don't know what's going to happen. And David Weeks confidence. He's just cruising that vessel directly into those uncharted territories and just trusting the winds and or his ability to work with the wind. Mm-hmm. And I dig it.
1: Yeah, I think that's also what David Sherbridge was talking about when he said, like, One of the great rules of the sea is that you just kind of go with the flow.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and what Terry Crews was talking about when he's like, you got to ride, ride the, the log. log. That's right. That's right.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, so many
2: good ones. I, I can't let this end without remembering some of Tanya aguinigo's fantastic stories oh, from her I childhood.
1: I know. And what a crazy childhood she had going back and forth, crossing the border every single day with her family.
2: I know. I know. And then also <laughs> she got chased by a bull.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. And oh, they had that pet eagle in the house that they were building and then they gave it like the master bedroom while the house was being built and that's where the eagle lived. <laughs>
2: and her dad would just like throw stakes in the room. <laughs> right.
1: Oh my gosh, that was such, She's such a, good a character. Episode. Oh, I think that was episode 13. Oh, David Weeks was episode twelve and then Tanya was thirteen. Yes, yeah, so if you guys missed it, go back and listen. I also really loved Jonathan Adler when he said that he like heard somebody on the phone at his store who said, Oh, I'm at Jonathan Adler and I'm shopping, and then he realized he was not just a person or a name. He became a brand. I thought that was really, really interesting.
2: He's like, "Whoa, I'm a thing now. Right. I'm not just I'm not just a guy anymore."
1: <laughs> yeah, he. There was a lot of good nuggets in um, that conversation. He also talked about, you know, that people uh, project ideas on the maker, like people who make things, people who craft product or, or you know, beautiful objects. And he said, when people think about artisans, they project a sort of idea purity onto the maker of things and for Jonathan it was ironic because when he stopped making everything himself that enabled him to become infinitely more creative because he was stepping back from the production process and he was able to spend time on being more creative that's a really great episode too
2: so those are some of our favorite moments we've been asking you guys to share your favorite moments on Instagram Twitter and Facebook at clever podcast now let's talk to Seth Grizzle
0: My name is Seth Grizzle. I am with Gray Pants in Seattle, Washington, and we are a conceptual design studio focusing on lighting, architecture, and custom installations. And the reason we're doing it is because we love to do it. (laughs) Wonderful.
2: We kind of like to start at the beginning. We like to know the backstory. So where are you from?
0: I am from Akron, Ohio, just outside of a cornfield.
2: What was your childhood like? What's your family dynamic? It's
0: Pretty much the white picket fence Americana lifestyle. I'm son of a preacher. My mom's a school teacher. Pretty simple upbringing. Uh, Just a really kind of tiny Midwestern town.
2: It sounds super wholesome, but sometimes there's usually some torture lurking beneath the wholesomeness. Did you have any thoughts of rebelling or were you just a pretty well-adjusted kid?
0: Believe it or not, I was actually a pretty good kid, if I may say so myself. I think my parents would back that up. My rebellion was more to leave, I think, eventually. Wanderlust. Yeah, find find the bigger city.
2: Gotcha. Did you grow up like tinkering or playing with Legos or making stuff with your dad? Where did this sort of passion for architecture and design start in you?
0: I'm very different than my family. I have a sister. She's 16 months older than I am. We are completely different people. She is an accountant and is very logical in process. And I'm sort of the crazy creative one that they didn't really understand, perhaps.
2: Oh, nonlinear thinker, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can relate to that. You're like an alien in your own home.
0: Oh, definitely. Yeah. (laughs) Legos were my toy of choice by far. That and there was all these Things called connects as well, which was another kind of construction toy. Those were my my jam back in the day, and uh-huh. both of my grandfathers were welders and kind of craftsmen, uh, oh, and always cool. kind of tinkering and working on stuff. And
2: were they close by in Akron, Ohio?
0: They were. My family all was within a like a five mile radius, pretty much. So it was a really kind of tight knit, close family, and I spent tons of time with them. And my dad's father had a big huge red barn in the back with all sorts of tools and if something was broken you fixed it and I was I just spent a lot of time over there just tinkering around with him.
2: At some point you had to flap your wings and fly away from there. Did you figure out you wanted to study architecture and design right away or did you have a few detours along the route?
0: When I was in junior high is when I really got interested in architecture, and it was through an art teacher. Mm. And my art teacher was probably the most influential person early on in my life to help guide me and make those decisions and show me that there were other possibilities out there in the world. And he really, I guess you could say, put a key to my brain and turned it and unleashed the beast.
1: Oh, that's cool. So what kind of art were you making in this art class? Was it more like a shop class or was it fine art?
0: I went to two different... High schools, eventually. So what happened was the first one I had gone to, I went through junior high there, and I went through my freshman and sophomore year, and it was more fine art. And I learned about all the different periods of art-isms, and we kind of did a lot of painting and sculpture and still lifes and figure drawing. So it was more of a fine arts background that way. And then when I transferred high schools, it was a Mennonite high school, which was in the middle of an Amish town town. That was more woodworking and craft based. So I had a shop class there and we had all sorts of, you know, beautiful woodworking equipment and I learned a completely new skill set.
2: Oh I'm so jealous. Let's just give a high five there to art teachers. A lot of art classes and shop classes are disappearing from public education. And I think that's a real tragedy. Same here. I'm really glad that you are giving a voice to how it influenced you and and that you had the fine art background juxtaposed with the, the hands-on making craft background. I think it's really nice that you got exposed to both of, of those disciplines while you were still in your developmental stage.
0: Yeah, I was super lucky. Very, very fortunate. And that's, I think, speaks to the wholesome Midwestern background as well.
1: What was the reason why you moved high schools? Did your family move to a new town?
0: My dad ended up switching churches. So okay. it, it was kind of linked with him.
1: What was it like going to that kind of? cool.
0: I was excited. I was more truthfully at that stage in my life. I was a basketball player and I grew up in the hometown of LeBron James. So he uh, kind of stole the show, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, he was, he was an amazing player, but I, basketball was my thing and basketball and art pretty much. I was a pretty shy kid growing up and it helped me, I think, crack out of my shell a little bit to make new friends and new friend groups and mm-hmm. kind of really force me to rediscover, I think, myself and get comfortable talking to people and help break myself out of a shell. But as far as the upbringing in Northeast Ohio, I always say it was a good place to be from. I I look forward going back to see my family. I know it it gave me a really good base for the world and understanding and skill sets to move from.
2: And learning how to crack out of your shell, it's key to being a business person or to being able to talk about and sell your work. So that sounds like it was an important stage for you. Did you go directly to college after high school?
0: I did. I went to Kent State University, which was about 20 minutes, 15-20 minutes from where I grew up. And they, they had a really good architecture program at the time, and a family friend was really familiar with it and was a former professor there and had really turned me on to that. So I ended up going there. And that's where I met Jonathan, who I started Great Pants with.
1: How did you guys end up forming the company? Did you form it in Ohio or did you end up moving to the Pacific Northwest right after college? How did all of that come about?
0: It all came about in a very random, serendipitous sort of way. So John and I were roommates in college and we always worked on projects together and tinkered and teamed up on a bunch of different things and we always toyed around with the idea of doing our own thing someday and through college we had internships in Cleveland working at different firms and that's where I started to develop my love for furniture that in high school I think working in shop class and just having an appreciation for craft but it was I worked for this firm in Cleveland and the reason I went there the head partner at the time worked for Aero Seren until he had passed away. And we had original Serenin pieces in the office and then also in his house. And he had uh, original Riedveldt pieces. One of it was a chest that was one of four in the world. And I just really mm-hmm. fell in love with design at that point in a different way. And I was at I was at that firm till I graduated and I stayed there. And Jonathan then moved out West. And I went to Washington, D.C. to open office with two other guys for the same firm they were branching out so I I went east and he went west and then since the internet and email and all those things were raging at that time we still worked on competitions and projects together kind of Mm bi-coastal.
2: At what point was this about what year?
0: This was after we graduated so uh, we graduated in 2004 and 2005 we got two degrees in architecture and so this would have been in starting 2005 We just started kind of working on competitions and submitting things together and kind of playing around with ideas. And that's where the seeds of Grey Pants really started. It wasn't Grey Pants, but we didn't really know what it was or what it was called. But we were just really developing our collaboration together and friendship. And I was in D.C. for two years and then eventually moved out west. That's where things really started to take off for us.
1: So you're both kind of approaching all of this with with architectural background so that actually makes sense when you look at some of your pieces especially the first pieces that you came out with so uh i want to ask you about the name gray pants why the heck you made your company called gray pants when you don't (laughs) make pants
0: that's (laughs) a great question we we felt our last names were really strange grizzle and junker and
1: seriously you guys have the coolest names
2: (laughs) They're cool names, but from a marketing standpoint, I don't know that they really work.
0: No, exactly. And we were doing typical overthinking design, right? So we were, like, coming up with our own names or trying to make up our own stuff and just, like, way overthinking it. And a friend looked at us and goes, well, you guys used to wear the same damn pants. Why don't you call it gray pants? Because Jonathan and I had the same pair of gray pants in college. It was our nice pair of pants and we wore them for our critiques and our first jobs because, you know, we poor college kids just had pants with holes in them. And these were the only ones that really didn't have holes in them. So they were our nice pair of pants. And <laughs> it just kind of became a joke. And then that's how it all. That's so
1: funny. Design Milk was also a joke when I started the name. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, who would ever name their company Design Milk if you were trying to create a company? It's kind of like one of those things where it's like silly and it's like an inside joke. And then all of a sudden it becomes a brand. But kudos to you for sticking with it. It works. Yeah, it does.
0: As long as it makes you smile. That's the thing. I think for us, at least every time we think about it or have to tell the story, I will admit I do smile on it. You know, I have fond memories. Yeah, it's good. (laughs)
2: What's the partnership dynamic like between you and Jonathan? Are you guys the same person or do you have different strengths and weaknesses that complement each other?
0: Yeah, we work really well together. I would say definitely more of a complementary skill set. I tend to be bigger, crazy, conceptual thinking, and Jonathan's more refined, detail-oriented. So together, blending those things together, things actually get done, which is nice. (laughs) And (laughs) we can also think big and think small at the same time. and start out with an idea that you don't really know where you're going to end up and then we can kind of tailor and hone it down to make it something so there's some sort of trajectory to go with it
1: the first exposure i had of gray pants products was the step light which is an aluminum light and it comes flat packed and it kind of accordions out into a pendant was that the first product that you released together as gray pants
0: no that was actually the second lighting series that we came up with was the step light. The first was the scrap lights, which were the recycled cardboard. Okay.
1: With the recycled cardboard pieces, did you work with him on that when you were in different cities and that's something you kind of came up with? Or was that after you came out to meet him in the Pacific Northwest?
0: It was after I came out here. So I came out here in 07 and we again became roommates and we were living together. And We were kind of bored with our day jobs. Architecture is a a great profession, but we really wanted to use our hands again. We weren't really using our hands as much as we wanted to do. So we we were sitting behind computer screens. So we were trying to figure a way to bridge the gap where you could do something with a computer, but then also bring it back to using your hands. And that's sort of how the lights came about. We entered a competition.
2: Can you describe the lights really quick for our listeners who may not have seen them?
0: We have a whole range of different sizes and pendants that are made from corrugated cardboard. uh, And it started out as a dumpster diving project, pretty much just trying to find uh, material that was being wasted and giving it a new life. And since our background was in architecture and the way our minds were working within models and the way how we could think about making something from a 2d surface into a 3d object was in layers and pieces and slices. So The series is really classic shapes, but then uh, terraced or stacked uh, corrugated cardboard. And we're using the corrugations as a means to play with the light and how the light interacts between the corrugations to develop uh, like a light and shadow. And they give really unique patterns and breathe light in a different way on the walls and the different settings that they're in.
2: Yeah, they're these gorgeous volumes of stacked rings of cardboard with light on the inside. So the light comes through the corrugations and really casts light in the room in a really interesting way.
1: Yeah, and I think what I love the most about the cardboard lights is when you look at them, you're not quite sure what they're made out of. And in some way, you've been able to really elevate cardboard, which is a material that we all use for things like boxes, you know. You've created these really beautiful and interesting lamps that look so luxurious.
0: Yeah, part of the challenge was abstracting the material to the point where you didn't really recognize what it was prior. And that was one of the big hurdles initially moving forward with that as an idea was that if people had the conception that cardboard was this kind of, you know, off the shelf, just cheap material, then it was elevating the idea of like what that was to a product. And it was more about craftsmanship and the elegance and taking it to the next level and taking it to the next thing.
1: So let's go back to that origin story where you said you were entering a competition.
0: There was a call in Seattle through an art gallery and it was galleries no longer in existence, but the call was for sustainable seating. And I think this was in 2007, a later 2007. And Jonathan and I had entered, uh, wanted to enter to do something in there to make something. And we, at the time we thought working at different architecture firms that there was sustainable buzzwords being slapped around like green. And even sustainable and everything like we were sending in presentations and people would just add that into conversation as if you know, everything was that and we we're like, well, let's just challenge ourselves and like make a chair from trash. So we decided to look at what was around us or what we could get access to. And we ended up making a series of four chairs from waste materials that we collected. And one was old boxes. The other was stranger newspapers, which is a local newspaper in Seattle. And the other was slip sheets that come in the freight containers uh, into the port here. Then the other was a scrap pieces of plywood that we got from local contractors. So we made a series of four chairs for this gallery exhibition. just all made from waste material. And the way that these chairs were being exhibited, the gallery space had really tall ceilings. So chairs looked like doll furniture as a setup. So when we walked in, we're like, oh, wow, we really need to do something to kind of lower the scale of the room to make the chairs a little bit more intimate. Mm-hmm. So we decided to make, lights from the scraps of the chairs to hang above it and those became scrap lights.
1: Oh so. that's a great story. Yeah they weren't even like the main object that you were creating for the competition they were kind of the sidebar and accidentally you've created your first product.
0: Yeah they were an afterthought and the first one was present for my girlfriend at the time wanted to make or something. And then that's what we ended up using to hang above the chairs. But yeah, they were just an afterthought. What happened was people were looking at the lights and didn't look at the chairs, so mm. <laughs> which is fine. It worked out.
1: That's um that's focus testing. You got your customer feedback right there. Exactly. I want to hear a little bit more about how the business started. So you had all these people looking at the lights and did you and Jonathan just look at each other and be like, okay, we've got a roll with, with
0: these? No, we actually got pushed into it because afterwards we were still really excited about the chairs, but <laughs> we had these lights as well. So we decided to submit both of them to, there was a contemporary design fair in Phoenix. So we submitted the chairs and we submitted the lights. And then there was another competition through design within reach that we submitted both. Mm -hmm. And we're like, Oh man, the chairs are going to be great. People are going to love this. And then the lights ended up getting selected as finalists in both of those uh, competitions. And then after that friend of ours who became sort of a business mentor was like, you guys really need to do something with this. So he just kept pushing us to to develop and take it on as a thing. So we started to do that on the side from our day jobs.
1: Was that in 2008?
0: That would have been in 2008. We officially, on paper, started Grey Pants in uh, January 1st of 2008. And uh, while we were both working our architecture firms, we would work during the day and then come home at night and also work
2: tell me a little bit more about this friend who is also a business mentor that sounds like kind of a critical role to play in the inception of this
0: again it was just serendipity and i guess we create our own serendipity in the end
2: oh i like that we do
0: we do i always i had a joke with one of my friends that i would say serendipity is not in the bottom of a bag of cheetos so you just can't sit around and like eat a whole bag of junk food and expect things to come to you. you have to like get out and create your own opportunities Uh, It was just through meeting people and friends. It was an an older gentleman who knew more about business. And John and I have design backgrounds. We don't have business backgrounds. We knew nothing about business. And he and a friend of his kind of took us under the wing and really mentored us through the early process of of starting a business because we had no clue. We had no clue how to do any of the paperwork or any of the taxes or any of that kind of stuff. So uh, they really, really were... uh, critical. And they were also just really great as a sounding board and really positive people to keep pushing us forward because it's so tough to start something. You just keep getting knocked down and you just got to keep getting back up. So their, their encouragement really helped us to go forward.
2: Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises.
1: 2008, you are on the books as Gray Pants, as a company. But since then, you have done so much. Your business has exploded. You did a video with BMW. You've had a feature in Dwa Magazine, among other features all over the place. And you also do lots of lamps for hospitality and also in Starbucks. So do you feel personally like you've made it as a designer in your career?
0: no. I don't. I don't ever want to feel like I made it. I think <laughs> you're not resting
1: on your laurels at this point.
0: <laughs> no, definitely not. It's fun to think about at times. You know, success is a. It's a funny thing. I don't feel like we've we've really made it. You know, there's there's so much more that we want to do. There's so much more that we want to get out. There's you know so many more ideas that we're excited to put out there and push forward. That I don't really want to rest around it. So I, it kind of makes me makes me excited to keep. Working on stuff, I guess.
2: At, at what point did your company get big enough to open a studio in Amsterdam? Because you guys are international.
0: Yeah, we're lucky. <laughs> Again, we're really fortunate. But how it all worked out, so I after 2008, I still had a day job for about a year and a half. And then Jonathan had one for about a year plus after that as well. So uh, it just became this kind of like slow bootstrapped process for us to develop great pants and we got really fortunate early on with great interns and people just kept showing up to help us on projects and how the whole Amsterdam piece started was I guess it's four years ago now well we've been going to ICFF which is the International Contemporary Furniture Fair in the states which is I think the largest design show in the states Mm -hmm. that's what really kind of springboarded and launched us several years ago.
2: Yeah, I remember when you guys showed there, the first year you showed there, I was like, whoa, who are these guys? A new player on the field. This is cool.
0: It was a last minute thing. Yeah, it all happened pretty much a month before the show. I, I begged my parents just for a little bit of money to to show up and go there. And we didn't even know where we were going to stay when we showed up. Just all, it was it was kind of a wild story and it just all ended up working out. And that's what really helped launch us. But then a couple years later at the same show, we ended up meeting two Dutch guys that were just really great people and sort of approached us, and they wanted to do more distribution for us through the Benelux region in Europe. We thought it was more beneficial to really explore the idea of setting up another office and production for a different region using local materials over there. It's a satellite to gray Pants, but it's more sales, marketing, distribution for our products in Europe. And pretty much the rest of the world.
2: I want to talk a little bit about your creative process. What does the ideation process look like at Gray Pants? What does it usually start with?
0: Nature is an inspiration source for us, and for me, growing up in Ohio, and Jonathan grew up in Ohio as well. So we didn't have mountains and water really. So when we came out here to Seattle, uh, we just kind of were blown away by the natural beauty that's here, and it's it's been nature's always just been a huge inspirational source I think for us at least to spark our minds
2: and how do you translate that into
0: ideas and products oh, that's I don't know magic a lot of magic <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> we just like to tinker and like throw things at a wall and see what sticks and the the interesting thing for us you know we have three different areas or sandboxes we say that we play in and one of them is the product side and it's definitely developed more into the, the lighting world and we do custom installations now out of our Seattle studio so we design installations for
2: Oh, you did Uh, the cloud at Airbnb.
0: We did. We did that. And we've done some things at Nordstrom's here.
2: Just for our listeners really fast, the the Airbnb headquarters is in San Francisco and Gray Pants did a custom light installation, which is a giant cloud, glowing cloud of ping pong balls, right? How many thousands of ping pong balls did you use?
0: About 30,000.
2: Okay. <laughs> I yeah. spent a lot of time in San Francisco, so I've seen that in person. It's pretty impressive.
0: Yeah, it's it's fun. It's fun to see it. But yeah, we do a lot of custom installations now and then we still do architecture, but we treat architecture as art. We really love flirting on the boundary of art and design and architecture is our excuse to be artists again. And the way John and I were practicing architecture before and the different firms we were at and how we were in the profession we decided that once we got out if we were going to do it that's sort of the way we want to treat it Uh, it's a really long process and we we think the process should be a beautiful process and it takes years to flush out these ideas and if we were going to go do it we really wanted to do it in this in this beautiful artistic way and, and have buildings be lanterns have buildings be sculpture have buildings really transform people's lives so that's how we started to approach that
2: Do you have to work around trying not to be known as the cardboard light guys?
0: That was a concern for us, for sure. Um, Yeah. And we we definitely didn't want to be known as just, yeah, the cardboard guys. We really love that material. We love what it's done for us, but we don't want it to be the only thing that we do. So we've been working really hard to develop other things outside of the cardboard realm but also still experimenting with it because at this point we're pretty good at it. We have a lot of different expertise with it that we can really explore and push to.
2: You just mentioned wanting to transform the landscape, like be a lantern within the landscape. And I've seen not in person, but images of this recent architectural work you did called the garage, which is very much a glowing lantern within the landscape. Was that a commission? What was the reason for that project?
0: It was. It was a commission. So we were commissioned by a couple in Seattle to do that. They approached us.
1: OK, it's really beautiful. We'll put some pictures up on our, our website in the show notes for this episode so people can take a look at it. Uh, oh, another thing I wanted to ask you about, the Pacific Northwest is like blowing up. And I'm going to wait till the train goes by.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're we're in the industrial area. So we're sandwiched between uh, uh rail line and like a truck transfer station so oh, yeah. nice. i love those areas
2: <laughs> that sounds so romantic it feels to me. So
1: industrial
0: the building the building that we're at was uh, 1906 and they used to build ships inside of it these really tall huge sawtooth roof huge wooden timber frame uh, it's really charming
1: oh wow so what i wanted to ask you is the pacific northwest is like blowing up in terms of the design scene. There's lots of great stuff coming out of of all the cities up there. What is the Seattle art and design community like? Because as an outsider, it feels very collaborative. Is that your experience?
0: The thing about the Northwest that I appreciate and learned is that it's, it's very opening and welcoming. So I think that transcends into the design community and the art community as well. The city itself is just growing like crazy. So I think naturally everything grows with it.
2: What industries are growing in the city? Is tech moving in?
0: Tech, yeah. Tech yeah. is huge. Um, yeah. So big. It's San Francisco 2.0. Yeah. That's huge. Basically, every major tech firm is opening an office here or a campus. Uh, and it's this transition of moving back to downtown. And Amazon really kind of pioneered it and started it. So instead of you know doing the satellite campus idea, it's basically doing an urban campus. So within the city.
1: Oh, that's really interesting.
0: The, the one thing about Seattle is it's so much natural beauty, even around the city. I mean, you're looking at two mountain ranges, you're surrounded mm-hmm. by water. It's really picturesque. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a really desirable place to, to be from that perspective.
1: So who else is doing really cool stuff up there that you really like?
0: Well, we work a lot with Urban Case. So Darren yeah. Montgomery of Urban Case, he works within our studio and we just uh, partnered with him on a shop space.
1: Let's talk about the showroom space. When did that open? Was that last year?
0: Let's see, we've been in this space now for five years. We moved from Capitol Hill down to Soto, and we just expanded the studio three years ago. More space became available down where we're at, so we treat half of the the space as kind of more dirty, hands-on, working on custom projects. Then the other half is office and showroom. And we've been building it out for the past Two to three years now, and so we've been transforming it that way. And it's still a work in process. Always, your own projects are the ones that come last. So some are ninety percent done, some are fifty percent done. It's still a work in work in process.
1: Is it more of a by appointment showroom, or is it a retail space?
0: It's kind of appointment only, but people come down all the time. We'll pop in. We get a lot of student tours. Coming through as well, different universities. We try to host a lot of the architecture and design community as well for happy hours down here. So we like to bring people down. It's just a really beautiful space to be in. So we try to open it up as much as we can and uh, have people come in throughout the day if they, they want to just kind of chill.
2: So let's shift gears a little bit and talk more about Seth Grizzle, the person. We know you're a designer and an architect and that you make awesome stuff for a living but what do you really do to refuel your personal tank like do you still play basketball do you have a hobby on the side do you have a, a personal life with children Wh- what fuels you
0: john is a new father so he <laughs> i think that's <laughs> that's definitely keeping him occupied he has mm-hmm. a little girl that was born in uh november oh, it was well,
2: congratulations
0: <laughs> uh i i do not i have a dog and he's awesome his name oh. is fig all he's right. a yeah, he's a goofy guy. Uh, he's
2: hypoallergenic.
0: Up. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's great.
2: Oh, big. We want big. a
0: picture. Yeah, I can send one. He's, okay. he's adorable. Yeah, he's my buddy. Uh, I play with him. Go to the dog park. Definitely have to you know, get my exercise. That's good. But I don't do it through basketball anymore. Uh, in the summer, when the weather gets nice, I hop outside. I love to you know, go hiking, be in the mountains. Get as high up as I can in the mountains is my preference, at least.
2: For perspective or just for the the oxygen deprivation?
0: The challenge and the views. And I'm just fascinated with mountains since I grew up in an area that was really flat. They kind of blow my mind.
2: They make you feel small in a good way.
0: They do. They definitely do. They put things into perspective. And Mount Rainier is kind of the backdrop for the city, depending on the angle. And it just dwarfs the city. It makes the city look so small. And it's just this huge thing in the background. So just kind of like, it's awe-inspiring for me. And I live on a boat, so I... You lo- live on a boat? I do. I live on a boat. Whoa! So I live on an old wooden boat that was, it was built in 1964 in Chicago, of all things. It was a custom wooden boat that was built for a family out here, and it's just been out in the Northwest since. And I just kind of stumbled on it and decided that would be a fun way to live. So I moved on a boat three years ago. And I... uh Try to get on the water as much as I can too in the summer.
1: Oh, that seems like it's so cool.
0: It's it's a lifestyle change. It's not for everyone. I'm oh, sure. I mean, it's uh, but it's it's a great challenge. I like to think of living space as a challenge or as an experience.
2: Yeah. I really
0: took it on as that, and you, know, I, you really don't need a lot in life, and it's just really taught me more about simplicity and the things that you own and the things that you have should be really special objects and really beautiful things. And that's even how we approach our work. I think good design makes good stories. You really start to notice that when you have to curate your space and what you buy and what you choose to put in it, and especially if you don't have a lot of space, everything becomes important. So it's really taught me a lot about that.
2: Does Fig like living on a boat?
0: That's all he knows. So, yeah, since he was eight weeks old, at least. I think he does. (laughs) I would say so.
2: We'll have to get a, a consortium of labradoodles together to to figure out whether <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's privately complaining.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
2: Okay, so if you had an alter ego, what would you be doing if you weren't a designer architect? If you had to be something else, what would it be?
0: A rock star sounds nice, but I, that means I would have to play an instrument or sing, <laughs> which I don't do. So
2: you don't sing either.
0: In the shower, I guess. You know. Yeah. What
2: enough. do you sing in the shower?
0: And probably. Uh, Billy Joel, maybe. It depends what's... <laughs> okay, <laughs>
2: you're right. a crooner.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, I grew up... That was my first cassette I ever bought was uh, Billy Joel Greatest Hits uh, Volume 1 and 2. I was a weird kid, I guess is what I'm <laughs> trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still a weird kid. I own it.
1: Yeah, but you know what? A lot of weird kids turn into really great designers and architects and artists, so that's totally fine.
0: <laughs> Celebrate the weirdness.
1: I want to know, since you have a studio in Amsterdam, I'm sure you've, you've traveled there, but I want to know what's been your favorite country to visit and what was the last trip you went on?
0: We get over to Amsterdam probably anywhere between three to four times a year or more.
2: Oh, you're like a local. That's a lot.
0: When you have a business to run, you have to be present, apparently. So <laughs> we, we have to show up every now and then. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's great, but I love, I really do love Holland. You know, the more time I spend in a place, the more I love a place. So you know, I really love Seattle. I really love Amsterdam. It's the two cities I probably spend the most time now by far, but I really love Holland and I love the way that they approach life they're a really small country and what it allowed them to do and think is that they don't have very many natural resources but they value people and they treat people as a natural resource and is their most prized resource so they really invest in their people and everybody has value and it's just a really beautiful way to look at life and i think we sort of take that for granted at least here in the states. so it's it's taught me and i knew this growing up but everybody is valuable and it's uh, it's a great reminder, and it's great to see that put into practice.
2: It's important, I think, also to to teach the youth to invest in humanity, right?
0: Exactly.
2: Speaking of that, I have a question. I want to know if your parents are proud of you.
0: I hope so. I know my I know my mom definitely is because she likes everything on Facebook that we post.
2: So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless moms. They're so good for that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would say I would say they are. They're they're great people. I definitely think so.
2: That's awesome. What's coming up for Great Pants?
0: Tons of stuff. Yeah, we have uh, we have some small architecture projects that we're working on. We're always busy with custom installations. We're doing tons tons of those now, which is great. And we're diversifying our product line as well. We just launched at Light and Building our entire Scrap Light series with white cardboard, which may sound really easy and kind of trivial but it took us seven years to figure it out we've been trying to figure out that process for a long time and we actually ended up having to like reinvent how we did everything uh, so we're really really happy about that
2: can you describe a little bit about what the biggest hurdle was it, do- it does seem like that wouldn't be that difficult what's the difference
0: sourcing the material and getting the right quality and getting the right precision that you needed you know our original series was all laser cut and we just couldn't use lasers anymore um it just took that long to to figure it all out
2: did lasers discolor the edge
0: yeah it burns it burns the material yeah so we have that in the pipeline we have new lighting series that we've been working on that's going to come out this year we've also developed a ceiling system so we have a ceiling system that we've designed that deals with lighting acoustics air distribution fire suppression full-blown like kit of parts for workplace pretty much and we've partnered with Urban Case, and we've been working with them on workstations, doing a lot more workplace design.
2: Oh, wow.
0: Finding opportunities to elevate that experience for people that can enjoy design in a different way. You don't have to sit in a steel box. Your workplace can be just as beautiful as the things that you have at your home.
2: Yeah, and that's a pretty exciting area of design right now because workplace is changing so much. Or at least a lot of people are really putting a lot of energy into thinking about what the workplace of the future is. So Exactly. What's the big picture? What's the end game? What's the long-term goal for Seth and Gray Pants?
0: I don't know that we have an end game. The end game is to keep making beautiful things. Let the beauty we love be what we do. And that's how we wake up in the morning. That's how we go to bed at night. We believe in design. We believe that design should be accessible to people and it's why we do what we do. So as Gray Pants in the future. I think we're going to Keep innovating and developing a lot within the lighting world, pushing that forward, as well as really flirting on that boundary of art and design. It's a really interesting space for us. I like to say that we are kind of a weird brainchild of the Eames and Dr. Seuss. If they got together and had a kid, that's (laughs) what we would be. So (laughs) that's kind of how I sort of describe us. So I think it's keep, keep evolving that and then also just remembering to have fun what we do because that's why we're doing it.
2: Well, where do you want our listeners to go find you? Website, social media, give us all those details.
0: Yeah, so graypants.com is our website. Check us out there, look at our work. We say that's the best way to see an active live portfolio of what we do. And you'll learn there's much more than cardboard on there as well. And social media, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram.
2: Thank you for sharing your story with us. Thanks so much, Seth.
0: Yeah, thanks, guys.
1: What a charming young gent. Yeah, he was really great to talk to. And who knew he lived on a boat? (laughs) That's so cool.
2: I know. I think that's one of my favorite things about doing this podcast is having license to kind of pry into their personal world. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad we found out that he lives on a boat because then we got that whole story out of him about how he feels about objects and how they're so important and how you should surround yourself with stuff that's meaningful, which... You definitely want the designers of the world with an attitude like that. You don't want them thinking that the stuff that you surround right, yourself with are like which, just
1: collecting junk,
2: <laughs> right? Or that it's disposable or not mm-hmm. meaningful, and that it's ephemera, right? Because ephemera is one thing, but when you're designing, it's got to have a core of meaning, or else it's trash,
1: right? And I love that they actually make product out of cardboard, which you would think. Some people think of it as trash or just for the recycling or whatever, but they've made these beautiful lights out of a material that you would never expect. And it doesn't even look like cardboard. And they've given meaning and life to something that we sometimes consider disposable. So there's a parallel there.
2: And what I love about these luxurious objects that are made out of cardboard is they remind you to look around at your entire
1: world and reevaluate everything you see. There's so much possibility in materials and things that we use every day.
2: There's possibility, there's beauty, and, you know, if somebody puts a little heart and energy into it, it could become a glorious, sculptural, transformative piece of
1: work. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Yay, Seth Grizzle. Yay, gray pants. (laughs) Totally. Thank you for listening. We have been so grateful for all the overwhelming support and great feedback we've gotten this past year. If you enjoy Clever and want more, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes and see images of Seth's work at cleverpodcast.com and connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast.
1: Also, we want to send a special shout out and thank you to all of our generous sponsors who helped support episodes this year. And also to those of you who have donated through our PayPal button on our website. We are very, very grateful for your generosity and it helps us keep Clever going. So Happy New Year to all of you, and we can't wait for you to hear who we're talking to in 2017. This episode
2: of Clever was edited by Chris Model of your studio with music by L-1011. Happy New Year, everybody. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.